First Baptist Church in Easton. And again, we have to meet over the computer or over the airwaves since we can't be together. I'm thankful for you tuning us in and just pray that our lesson will be a help and a blessing to you today. We are talking about streams in the desert, how folks who were looking at some folks in the Bible who found themselves in desert places and were saying how God sent the stream of his provision and power to them. And this morning we're going to talk about Moses. Our subject is three days into the desert. We want to look at Exodus chapter 2. And the last few verses of this chapter. The Bible says in verse 23, And it came to pass in the process of time that the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage. And they cried, and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning, And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. Father, thank you once again for this opportunity to to share in in your word. I pray that this this lesson would be a blessing to those who hear. And Lord, we know that you can send streams in the desert. And today we find ourselves in somewhat of a desert in our, in our country and in our world. And we're looking to you for your supply and your provision. Now bless our time as we spend it in your word this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's, let's play imagine for a minute. Imagine you could live over 400 years and you would see a lot of changes in the world. I was thinking about that. Can you imagine if someone who lived 400 years ago was brought forward to our day and age? I can't even, can't even fathom it. Uh, you know, we're talking about the 1600s and uh, to bring them into our modern world of technology. If you could live over a 400-year span, you'd see a lot of changes, a lot of advances But on the downside, you would see more and more war as well. Imagine you had a fruitful area to get ahead and settle down, or you moved to a fruitful area to get into and settle down and raise your family in. And imagine for that whole 400-year period, you never one time hear from your father. I wonder how you'd feel. Well, that's kind of where the Jews are in this lesson that we're looking at. The place we're talking about is Egypt. Your ancestors have been here for 400 years. You've heard a lot of stories about all the things that God has done, and you've heard about the patriarchs. But all this to you now seems like ancient myths because you're not seeing any of it. At one time, your lineage had a place of honor. When you first came down to Egypt, you were, you were given the best places and, and treated with honor, but it's changed. Now, you be, you've become a slave. You work every day, very hard, difficult work, and you're being used by Pharaoh to build the cities for, for the Egyptian pharaohs. They've tried to take your race into extinction, but you seem at every turn to somehow survive. No one can actually remember the last time Jehovah has spoken. And so you feel perhaps you've been forgotten. It's been a lot of years since Abraham lived. You begin to wonder, maybe there never really was a covenant between God and Abraham. You've heard a lot of remarkable stories about Isaac. You've wondered if they were true. 
Sure, you really believe that Jacob wrestled with an angel and had his name changed to Israel. You have become skeptical of religion, and you're not alone. Your people have prayed for a deliverer for far too long without any result. You might as well just face it. You'll die here like the rest who have come before you. Your life is doomed to be spent laboring under the hot sun for the Egyptians as a slave. But inside of you, down in your heart, there's a longing for freedom. Something inside of you won't leave you alone. You've been made with a faculty for worship, but you're not quite sure where to direct that worship. You wonder if it's really true after all. Maybe there is a God who loves you and has given special promises to you. There's a rumor in the workforce that Pharaoh's brother has now returned. You believe his name is Moses. You didn't care much for this man 40 years ago. You thought he was a coward for leaving. Rumor has it he's been living in the backside of a desert there and herding sheep for the last 40 years. And now he's come, and from what you've heard, he's announced himself to Pharaoh as the one God has chosen to deliver his people from this land. Curiosity gets the best of you. And you have to see this Moses, what this Moses is up to. To your detriment, Pharaoh is so angered by the Jews' presence that he assumes there's not enough work assigned to them. And so he doubles their workload. And Moses just says the Pharaoh is fighting against God. You're angry. You're angry because now you're working harder than ever. You're angry because you feel forsaken by God. And yet this man, Moses, has a very calm demeanor. He doesn't seem to be worried, and he's preparing to meet Pharaoh again. Strangely enough, you find yourself compelled to follow him, and you find yourself praying and hoping once again. You wonder if these long desert experiences of Egypt will finally be over. You're about to learn a great lesson. There can be streams in the desert experiences of life. Father, we pray that you bless us now, bless this lesson in Jesus' name, amen. The first big point we want to look at is the pleas to God. In Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, we find here the enslaved people long to be free. For as long as they can remember, they've been in bondage. Now remember, it's a 400-year period. And so this generation that's been, been brought up now grew up in bondage and as slaves. They've been there, they've seen their children murdered. We know how Pharaoh demanded that all the male children born would be put to death immediately. And they felt the degradation as being treated as property rather than people. But there's something inside that's caused them to long to be free. Word has been passed down from generation to generation that God would send a deliverer who would bring them out of Egypt and bring them to the land that God had given to Abraham. You've heard the story. You've, you've been told, but you've not seen it. An unconditional covenant had been made between God and Abraham. There was no way God will leave the Jews in Egypt forever. But it's been 400 years. How long can one person keep hoping against hope? Maybe the skeptics were right after all. Maybe it is all just a fairy tale. But then notice this. These people want to be free to worship. God sees their need. In Exodus chapter 3, Look at two verses, verses 7 and verses 9. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. 
Verse 9, Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me. I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. So while they're oppressed, while they're slaves, they're calling out to God and pleading with him for delivery. Hmm. An unconditional covenant is there, and God is not going to leave his people in Egypt. So God sees the need. He tells Moses that he's seen the need. And we understand that too many times we find ourselves in a difficult trial, and we begin to wonder, is God still watching over us? Listen, unanswered prayer can bring great difficulty to us or what we deem as unanswered prayer. When we feel like we're not seeing God active or working in our behalf, it troubles our soul. Sometimes we wonder if God is still watching over us. We fail to remember, <coughs> excuse me, there's God who gives us a song in the night. And that night is a word that represents great agony of the soul that sometimes as believers we have to go through. Even then, the psalmist understood that God is able to give us a song in the troubled times. From heaven, God takes notice of even the smallest sparrow that falls to the ground. I like that song, His Eye is on the Sparrow, and I know He watches me. The Bible says He's numbered every hair on our head. Some of us have made it easier for Him than others. But we have a God who's attentive to the needs of His people. He looks out for the needy in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11, Psalm 40, verse 17. Both refer to how the Lord looks out for the needy. And we understand this. <clears throat> the God that we worship and the God that Israel worship doesn't take a break. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, every day of the year for every year, God is there awake the Bible says he never sleeps and he never slumbers. And thank God for that. <clears throat> you know, sometimes in our daily lives, we, we have a need. And when we go to the place where that need can be met, we find it to be closed or, or <clears throat> uh, shut up and, and not able to meet what we need. But that'll never happen with God. <clears throat> The Bible declares he never sleeps, he never slumbers. You know, when I, when I read that over in, in Psalm 121, I can't help but think about when Elijah took those prophets of Baal up on Mount Carmel and had that contest and how they cried out and cried out and cut themselves and did all manner of things trying to call down fire from heaven and how, how Elijah came to that place where he chided them he said, uh, you know, maybe your God's take, gone off or maybe he's asleep or whatever. But listen, no one can ever say that about our God. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all day, every day, he's there. And <clears throat> we may not, he, he's there. Now, understand this. He may not operate according to what we want or what we think, but that doesn't mean he's not working. Well, sometimes we go through situations and we think God ought to be doing one particular thing and we think he's not answering because he's not doing that and come to find out later that all the while he was working in another way in that, in that situation. We just have to trust him and believe that he never sleeps or slumbers and he knows our needs. When we come to him in prayer, you know, we, we bring our needs to the Lord and it's not because he needs us to tell him what we need. He already knows. Well, why does he have us come to him and tell him? So that we'll be in touch with him. So that we will acknowledge that we need him and our dependence upon him. The spirit is the opposite of pride. God hates pride. God wants us to humble ourselves and come and request of him and cast ourselves on him because it, it does attack our pride and shows us that uh, <clears throat> we have a dependency 
upon him. Proverbs 6, verse 17 says, God hates pride. And uh, Peter tells us, God resisteth the proud, but he giveth grace unto the humble. God is not blind to our needs, and God hasn't turned a deaf ear to our cries, but he'll act not in our timetable, but his. And that's where we get into trouble. We think God ought to do what we want, when we want. But the fact of the matter is, God's going to do what he wants, when he wants. The Bible says he's in the heaven and he's done whatsoever pleased him. So we see that God sees the need of these, these Jews who, who are crying out and they're, they're under bondage. And then God prepares a man. <clears throat> in Exodus 3, verses 1 through 15, we have the account of how God was preparing Moses. Now, these people of Israel have been praying, and they had no idea that God was, was in the process of preparing the man who was going to come and lead them. And it took 80 years to get Moses ready to be what God wanted him to be. God always works for human instruments, and that's a humbling thought. Humbling in the fact that the almighty God of all creation would, would allow us <laughs> to work for him. When the world has a need, God sends a man who can lead. As we read the Old Testament, we learn that God would send Israel, David, and King Hezekiah, and the prophets to help in times of crisis. And you know, if you look at the history of Israel today, since 1948, we've seen God in a very special way put his protection on Israel and raise up men to lead them in the time of need. So here's this man, Moses, born to believing Jews, ones who didn't fear Pharaoh's commandment to kill the children. We know that when he was born, they hid him for as long as possible. And when it became impossible to hide him any longer, his mother put him in an ark. And God providentially guided that little watercraft right to Pharaoh's daughter. I love that story. And how Pharaoh's daughter uh, saw the child and uh, was taken to him and uh, wanted, wanted to keep him. You know, it kind of reminds me, and this is a bad illustration, I guess, but kind of reminds me uh, when you see a puppy dog, you know, it's, it's hard not to love it and and want to take it home. Well, I think that's how Pharaoh's daughter felt about this baby. Uh, couldn't help but love it and wanted to take it home. And so she, she uh, and, and it's interesting how Moses' sister says to Pharaoh's daughter, do you want me to find somebody to care for that child for you? Oh, yeah, do that. And Moses' mother ended up being the person chosen to take care of Moses until he was weaned and able to go over to Pharaoh's house. Well, God was, his providence is seen in all of that. And uh, while he was in Pharaoh's house, Moses receives a very, very tremendous education, if you will. He, he was uh, tutored under the, the finest minds of, of Egypt at that time. And, uh, but when he, when he was 40 years old, we find the story of how he slew an Egyptian and uh, ended up fleeing Egypt because of that. And he spent the next 40 years of his life on the backside of a desert attending sheep. He received an education from the Egyptians for the first 40 years. And in that 40 years on the backside of that desert, he received an education from God. God was preparing him for what he had. And uh, <clears throat> the task that was given to Moses was a monumental task. You know, I guess... I guess I saw too much of the Ten Commandments movie. I, uh, you know, I never really uh, understood uh, the number of people that Moses had to deal with. We're talking about anywhere from two to three million Jews. That's a lot of people. That's, uh, I don't know how many Philadelphia has, but I, but I would say probably at least half of, of the, the uh, population of Philadelphia. Can you imagine you being put in 
command over all these people and responsible for them? Well, that's where Moses found himself. The responsibility of leadership would be an enormous burden and it would put great pressure on Moses. But God had made a promise. God had prepared a man and now he's raising up this man to deliver his people. Moses comes back to Egypt and he gathers the leaders of of Israel together. And now remember, Aaron is the spokesperson and Moses performs the signs. And these two brothers are casting their vision for what God wants to do with his people. When the elders heard what God had said and saw what Moses did, they believed. Now, personally, I find that miraculous. I find it miraculous because we have a tendency to be skeptical of things. But yet when Moses came and he said, God wants me to do this, and uh, he showed them the signs, I'm sure that, that went far in convincing them, they believed and they rallied behind Moses. And they were ready to back his leadership. Now it's time for Moses to leave his comfort zone of the desert Now it's time for him to go to the palaces of Egypt and face Pharaoh. The forces of good were to come face to face with the forces of evil. He's about to have a wrestling match, if you will, with the gods of Egypt. To the idolatrous people, Moses marched and declared that the one true God demanded his people's worship and devotion. The battle's about to begin. So we see the pleas to God. These these Jews have been pleading and begging and God to deliver them. Now God sees the need and prepares a man. Then we see the petitions of Pharaoh. (coughs) This is in chapter 5. And uh, somebody has put it this way. I think it's so appropriate. Let's make a deal. That's the attitude of Pharaoh. In Exodus 5, Moses goes to see the mighty Pharaoh of Egypt. He walks back into the lifestyle he had left behind to follow God into the desert. His request is simple. Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. Let us go three days' journey into the desert and sacrifice unto the Lord. Exodus 5. Moses has simply asked for his people to be allowed to go three days, to travel three days into the desert to worship Jehovah. Well, now put yourself in Pharaoh's shoes. It's just demand, but Pharaoh's not quite ready to let go of all of his free labor. And so it's going to be a battle of the gods of Egypt against the one true God of Israel. And that's what these plagues that are about to come are all about. There's a demand made to compromise. Chapter 5, go over there. Verse 14. I'm sorry. Oh, chapters 5 through 14. Uh, tells the story of, of, of the plagues. And... Uh, I hope you understand that every one of those plagues that were sent was an attack on one of the gods of the Egyptians and showing God's superiority over them. Now, Pharaoh assumes that he's working with just ordinary people and he's not about to surrender these people to go out and leave him and and, uh, go out into the desert lest they not come back. And so the battle's on. What if they don't come back? In his mind, he has to have some middle ground. Pharaoh is looking for some kind of leverage to draw the people back to Egypt. He's concerned that he's going to lose them. So he responds to God's will. Let's notice how he responds, and I'm going to give you some verses. First of all, he says, I know not the Lord. I will not let you go in chapter 5, verse 2. In chapter 5, verses 7 through 9, he tells him, you, you must have too much free time on your hands. 
we're going to increase the workload. And if, you, if you're not familiar with it, what he did was he said, uh, you got too much time on your hands. So from now on, instead of my people bringing you straw to make bricks, and they would mix the straw with the clay uh, to make bricks, he said, you have to go find your own straw and make the bricks, and you have to keep producing at the level you've been producing. And so that put a great burden on the people. But then the Bible says over in 7.13 and 14 and 7.23 and 8.15 through 19, how Pharaoh actively hardens his heart. Now, sometimes we, we wonder about this, and, and you know, I, I question it at times. The Bible says that Pharaoh, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But the Bible says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart first. Now, what I believe happened there is Pharaoh hardened his heart, and God gave him over to a reprobate mind, just like over in Romans chapter 1. In other words, uh, God gave him over to where he would not respond in a proper way, and his heart was hardened towards what God wanted. And then Pharaoh several times made a promise, but he breaks it in 8, chapter 8, verses 8 through 15 and 9, 27 through 35. He makes a promise and breaks it. In chapter 8, verse 25, he says, go sacrifice to God right here in the land. No need for separation. Just do your sacrifices here. Of course, none of this is acceptable. And then he says, I'll let you leave the land, but you're not go, you can't go very far. Chapter 8 and verse 28. And then he says, I will let just the men go. Leave your children and women behind. And that's in chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. Then he says, in chapter 10, verse 24, go take your children, but leave your flocks and your herds. And of course, that's unacceptable because they would have nothing to sacrifice. And then in chapter 14, of course, when he let them go, and after they had departed, then he says, what am I thinking? Bring them back to me. So these are all the attitudes of Pharaoh and his, his thought process here through this thing where he's trying to hold some kind of leverage, some kind of bargaining position. And, of course, with God, he has no bargaining position. It's evident as we read about Pharaoh, he thinks he's calling the shots. Pharaoh thinks he's in control, and because he's in control, then he has room to negotiate. With each plague, he watches an Egyptian deity conquered, and Jehovah stands supreme. But instead of humbling himself, he becomes more prideful until that he, in the end, is humbled and broken by the death of his firstborn son. As long as he thought he was in power, he won the children of Israel to compromise. Yet Israel has recognized Jehovah as their final authority, they must follow him, and they refuse to compromise. You know, that brings us to our day and age in a lot of ways. The world is constantly making demands on us to compromise the will of God. The world cannot understand why you don't want to work on Sundays. The world is confused why you would take vacation time to go on a church-sponsored retreat. I was thinking about this, and they confused why you would take vacation time to go to a church-sponsored retreat. They continually pressure the child of God to fold and to bow to their pressure. I remember when we were with Pastor Fidena at Faith Baptist Church, and, and I had gotten saved, and, and we were introduced to a summer camp not far from here. And uh, it was a good camp, and they had family camp every year. Now, we started sending our kids to their age-level camps, and uh, they enjoyed that. But the family camp, and we started going to that. We went the first year. And, uh, and now, remember, I was a new Christian. I had no idea what to expect. I thought, we're going to go to this camp. We're going to sit around all day and read the Bible. That's what we're going to do. We'll have church a couple times a day, and then in our spare time, we'll go sit and read the Bible. Well, it wasn't like that at all. 
Now we had our church time, we did, but then we had some free time where we had activities and things. And uh, we found when we got back from that, we were very refreshed spiritually. And so we began going every summer. We went to family camp. And some summers, I think we even went twice. Hmm? It was wonderful to come apart from the world and be able to just focus on the Lord and uh, spend time with Him. Well, I remember when, back in those days when I worked at that can company. And uh, I remember when I told the foreman that I didn't want to work on Sunday anymore. If it could all be avoided, uh, don't schedule me. And the reaction of some of my coworkers, they couldn't believe it. Sunday was double time. And you're turning down double time. Well, yeah because I have something more important than double time. And see, as believers, we confuse the world when we take a stand. They don't understand. They think, you know, we're being wackos, but we're not. We're just trying to obey God and do what he says. The world will continually pressure the child of God to bow to their pressure. This world automatically assumes that the almighty dollar is the compelling motivator. Now, for the world, that's true. The love of money is the root of all evil. And they think because it's true of them that it has to be true of us. But our, our, our number one motivator is not money. It's the Lord. And they don't understand that. Their God is the almighty dollar. We're considered abnormal if we decline overtime to get to a Wednesday night Bible study. In the end, we must determine who we are going to follow. God has commanded us to forsake not the assembling of ourselves together. He has instructed us to evangelize the world, Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20. He's commanded us to live a holy life, 1 Peter 1, 15, be holy as I am holy. And these the areas, there's no room for compromise. We're following a higher calling. What saddens me is that's true. We, we have a calling to live holy lives. We have a calling to evangelize. We have a calling to reach the lost. And yet, how many Christians have compromised that? Hmm. Well, the demand is made, compromise, and they wouldn't do it. And then there's no room for compromise when the Lord has spoken. Chapters 5 through 14. Each time Pharaoh offers his contingency plan, Moses graciously tells him that his idea will not work. My God has spoken. There's no room for debate. God's people today have tried to compromise with the world far too often. We desire to be accepted or respected by the world. Accused of being intolerant, many Christians have toned down their message. The world doesn't want our tolerance, it wants our acceptance. In reality, it's the world that is intolerant of us and would be happy if we just went away. Mm -hmm. We're a thorn in their flesh because we refuse to compromise. Well, you're, 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 just, you're just not not tolerant. It's amazing how those who say we're not tolerant are not tolerant of us. Interesting, isn't it? It should be understood that the child of God has no room to compromise on the perfect will of God. We are not in the business of making deals to please those around us. When God speaks, we move out in faith, believing that God is right and the rest of the world is wrong. Amen. I'm going to say that again. When God speaks, we move out in faith, believing that God is right and the rest of the world is wrong. Faith is obedience in action. Our ultimate goal is to please God. So now Moses is confronting Pharaoh, and uh, he keeps coming back, and there's going to be ten plagues. We'll talk about that in a minute. But Pharaoh's getting frustrated now with Moses. Why wouldn't this Moses compromise? Why wouldn't he cater to my wishes? How could Moses not see how gracious I'm being 
in meeting his request halfway. I'm trying to work with this guy, and he's not being cooperative. Why does he have to be so stubborn and not willing to budge? And who is this God, Jehovah, that I should rearrange my whole kingdom for him? The world will become agitated when we, not, when we don't bow to its wishes, but it is better to hear the Lord say, well done, than to hear the boss say, well done. Hmm. We're here to please Christ and no one else. Sometimes there's extreme pressure put on us to bend. But we, we need to be like those three Jewish lads who stood before Nebuchadnezzar and said, we may burn, but our God is able to deliver us, and they trusted him. So we see the petitions of Pharaoh. Let's make a deal. That ain't happening. And then we see the provision in the desert. Stand still and watch the Lord work. Hmm. Obviously, Pharaoh was a very proud man. And it took several demonstrations of the power of God to convince him that releasing Israel was in his best interest. Pharaoh stands out as an arch enemy of the people of God. For 400 years, Egypt had control over Israel. In a way, Egypt had become dependent on Israel. To let them go would be a severe economic blow to the country. This proud ruler who was viewed as a god himself was not about to bow down to any other god. I talked about those plagues. There was 10 of them. The first was the rivers to blood. Then there was the frogs, the lice, the flies, the moraine the boils, the hail, the locusts, the darkness, ultimately the death of the firstborn. And as I said earlier, each one of those is an attack on the gods of Egypt. Now God had promised that he would bring Israel out of Egypt with a strong hand. Imagine what the Jews must have felt with each subsequent plague. Now put yourself in the position of the Jews watching all this. Here's the cattle of Egypt, they're all dying, while your cattle are alive and hearty. How about when it gets dark in Egypt? You don't have any problem, you have light. How about when those frogs came, and every household in Egypt was inundated with frogs? You don't have any frogs. And the lice and the flies. To deny that there was a supernatural element taking place before their eyes would have been ridiculous. And yet Pharaoh would not bend. For 400 years, the cries of Israel had gone up to Jehovah asking for a deliverer. That deliverer had come in the person of Moses. Oh, the joys of answered prayer. The Jews had begun to make preparations for their mass exodus. This is interesting how God worked this. They had been given gifts of gold and valuables from their Egyptian neighbors. It's just a matter of days until God's going to bring them out. After that death of the firstborns in Egypt, by the way, that death of the firstborn in Egypt was of everything, including the animals. Whatever was the firstborn in Egypt that wasn't of the Jews, died. Hmm. Pharaoh was now willing to humble himself under the mighty hand of God. What a joy in the camps of the Jews. Now when they, Moses says, all right, get up, let's go, it's time. We're heading out of here. So here he stands in front of two million Jews, ready to lead them to their desired haven. As they leave, we read the story and we find that God has evidenced himself and manifested himself in the Shekinah glory with a pillar of fire and a pillar of a cloud. So it's not Moses leading, actually. 
It's God personally leading these children into the land of Canaan. The joy in the hearts of these people is unspeakable. In the distance, now, now remember, they're going out. They're leaving Egypt. There's a couple of million of them. And uh, they're, they're rejoicing. Hey, we're free. We're free. We're going to the promised land. But then they come to the Red Sea. Now what are we going to do? How do we get across this, this water? And to add difficulty there, they suddenly start hearing hoofprints, if you will. Pharaoh's army is coming after them. To the other dismay of the Israelites, they see Pharaoh quickly approaching to destroy them. Why would God answer their prayer only to watch them be destroyed? Maybe it would have been better for them if they stayed in Egypt. Many of them probably felt that way. Pharaoh's coming. We're about to die. But God was in control. And he put that pillar or that cloud uh, between the Israelites and, and the Egyptians and protected them from the Egyptians ever getting to them while they crossed that Red Sea. But, you know, think about this, and this is so true. Human nature always wants to complain. Hmm? That's our nature. We want to find something to complain about. The children of Israel will complain time and again in the desert. God will mercifully meet their needs, yet they'll sin against him time and time again as they murmur and complain. So we see, <clears throat> number one, the prayers of the Jews are answered, sort of. They've been set free now, but now Pharaoh's coming after them. And then we see this, it's the Lord's battle. Moses may not have fully understood everything that God was going to do, but he at least knew enough to have faith in God's almighty, almighty ability to protect them. He knew that it was God's intent to bring Israel out of Egypt. But he also knew it was God's purpose to purge Egypt out of Israel. Mm. Think about that. He had to bring Israel out of Egypt, but they had so much of Egypt in them, he needed to work in them to bring the Egypt out of them. While it would have appeared hopeless, Moses knew God was still in control. As panic was preparing to go through the ranks, Moses called for the people's attention. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. He will fight for us. Hmm. Have you ever imagined yourself being there when that Red Sea parted? It's hard to imagine. Once again, uh, my viewing of the Ten Commandments, you know, the water parted a little ways and the people sort of go, listen, two million people had to cross. And it's interesting how the Bible tells us, now remember, the Red Sea is a sea. It doesn't have a river flowing through it. So the water, uh, God stacked it up on both sides. And he stacked water on water. And I believe there was a wall of water on either side of these Jews as they went through. And sometimes my vivid imagination, you know, I think about how they looked over and saw the fish looking at them, like you do out at Cabela's or somewhere in, you know, one of those aquariums. Uh, but they went through on, on dry land, and God opened up uh, that way for them, the Red Sea parting. What a defining moment to be the first one to step on dry ground. I, I, did you ever wonder if some of them weren't tedious, I, I guess you say, or, or concerned about stepping down, going through this water? But, you know, God put them in a position where they didn't have any choice. Now think about that. That's where God had to bring them. If he would have gave them a choice, they would have probably wanted to choose some other way. But this is the only way, God's way. The Egyptian army was, was impressed and in awe of what was going on. The Egyptians felt as though the Israelites were no match for them with their horses and chariots. 
and they were going to extinguish this Hebrew race, and uh, what they didn't extinguish, they'll bring back to be their slaves. But Moses was very quick to remind the people the battle belongs to the Lord. And we need to understand when people are fighting against us, they're really fighting against God. Listen, get the principle. If you're doing God's will and you're trying to follow the Lord and do what God has told you to do and be what God has told you to be, and somebody's opposing you, they're not opposing you. They're opposing God because you're just trying to be obedient to him. Hmm. He's well able to take care of the battle without our help. We're merely spectators watching a mighty God in action. God is able to defend us in the godless society. He's still able to make known his power and control. So now here they are. They're hurrying across on dry ground, and they realize Pharaoh's army is coming. And then all of a sudden, something happens to Pharaoh's army. The wheels of their chariots come off. Now, if they were moving and the wheels came off of one chariot, it would be one thing. Or even a couple of chariots. We'd say it was bad maintenance. But we're talking about all the wheels came off the chariots. That was God's doing. And uh, made them not able to, to proceed. And now here come the last Jews to the shore. And suddenly those waters come right back on Pharaoh's army. And it's interesting. There was no fire from heaven. There was uh, no angelic army that came to defend the Israelites. There were no signs in the heavens. God just used the natural things of this world to protect his people. He just brought the water in on Pharaoh's army, and the battle was won. In Exodus 15, we have recorded in the scripture the song of Moses. Truly, he had something to sing about. God had delivered his people in their dark hour. He alone deserved their praise and adoration. While the Israelites had taken a short trip out of Egypt, it would take several more years to get Egypt out of Israel. What amazing display of grace on God's part to deliver a group of people who had grown worldly in their thinking. These people in just a short while would build a golden calf to worship. God did not deliver these people out of Egypt because they were worthy. He delivered them because he promised. And let's, let's bring that to where we are. Listen, if you're saved today, you're not saved because you were worthy. You're saved because God promised. He promised for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We're not, there's not a person in the world worthy of God's salvation. We're all sinners. The Bible declares all of sin to come short of the glory of God. As such, we do not deserve heaven, but God has made a way. Just like he made a way for these, these Israelites, God has made a way for us to cross from the world into the promised land. And that's by faith in Christ and Christ alone. In just a short while, we see these people would turn from their faith in God and worship a calf. And that saddens our heart that people would be so fickle. But this morning, we need to understand God doesn't use, use us based on our worthiness, nor does he save us based on our worthiness. He doesn't save us because we have a lot to offer. He saves us because he's a gracious God that has promised life to whosoever will come to him. And for that, he certainly deserves our praise. No matter how dry the desert may become, God is still worthy of our praise. We think about what's happened here. We think about and oftentimes wonder guess. How in the world these Jews could ever turn their back on God after all he did to bring them out of Egypt? And they knew the story, and as the 
their history proceeds. The story is told over and over again uh, to their people about what God had done for them, how he had preserved them, taken care of them, brought them out. And yet time and time again, they murmur and complain and want to go back to Egypt. It's a sad thing. Egypt is a picture of the world. And sometimes there are believers who want to go back to the world. They want to go back to the leeks and garlic of the world, the things of the world that they think are better than what God has for them. I'm thankful that he wouldn't let these Jews go back. They sort of burned their bridges behind them. There was no returning. And I'm glad there's no returning for the saved person. Once you're saved, you're saved forever. God deserves our praise. The entire book of Psalms gives credence to that fact. While God deserves our praise, he also desires it. Yet it's impossible to offer up a legitimate praise to a holy God while living in the world. Praise and worship is not style of music. Rather, it's an expression of the heart. God wills that men pray everywhere, lifting holy hands. God wanted these people to come to a desert where the only protection was himself. God led these people to a place of complete dependence upon him, emphasizing the truth that he alone is worthy of our worship. This principle of praise is offered from a pure life that's not dependent upon our circumstances, Romans 8, 28. Listen, God had a plan for these people. He was working his plan. He brought them to a place of complete dependence upon him. He humbled them to that place. Even for their daily food, they had to depend upon him to bring the manna. And that's where God wanted them to be. Sadly, many times they didn't want to be there. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for Moses and how you used him to lead your people out of that bondage there in, in Egypt. We're thankful that you've given us opportunity to be freed from our bondage to the world and to sin and to death. And our freedom has been purchased through Jesus Christ and his shed blood. And Lord, I pray if any that are listening today have never been saved, that they'll come to Christ and know Christ and be saved, get born again and know the joys of salvation. And we pray for our morning service this morning, that you would bless and your work and your will would be done in hearts and lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.